Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with the Owens and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This is our Indian Wells recap episode. What a tournament it was, as always. Please welcome in my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Steve, quite a tournament, huh? It was. It was, you know, it's, it, it, they, they rarely let us down out there at, at, the, at Indian Wells with the Masters 1000 for the men and the women now with their 1000. And this was no exception. And in the end, Swiantek and, and Fritz were very worthy winners. No doubt about that. Yeah, no, uh, very worthy winners. And I think we got to start um, talking with the American men in this tournament because, I mean, seven Americans made the third round. Almost had two more, right? Sebi was on the brink of beating Rafa. Sock against Tsitsipas. Sock was up 5-3 in both the first and third set tiebreakers. So you almost had nine Americans in the third round. Um, you had what? We had four in the round of 16 with Fritz, Opalka, Brooks being Isner. Um, some additional great wins as well. Tommy Paul over uh, Sasha Zverev in the second round. Brooksby over Tsitsipas in the third round. Americans had their footprints all over this tournament. They did, and 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 many of them shined in defeat. I mean, Opelka, for example, lost in two tiebreaks to Rafa. Obviously, uh, Korda was very unlucky not to close Rafa out from two breaks up in the third, serving at five-two in the final set, and he lost that in a third set breaker. And and Brooksby played just fine against Nori, it just wasn't good enough to get the job done, but he had nothing to be ashamed of. That was a really high quality contest. One of, for me, one of the most enjoyable matches of the week, the second set of that match. So I feel like, uh, you know, they did very well. And even in defeat, they acquitted themselves. Well, it was a great tournament. I'm curious to see what, what happens with the American brigade in Miami. I mean, I can't tell you, it's gotta be s- several years now. I mean, American tennis fans, uh, they got to be so fired up because they're starving for this. And it seems like we got a group of guys that, that are not just, you know, top 50, top 30, top 20. We're getting, we can get some guys close to that top 10 level. here. Yeah. You just, there, there had to be a little bit of patience. I remember there was real panic in the late eighties as Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe were moving past their primes and there was all this panic. And that's when player development was set up and, there, there were great concerns within the USTA and among American tennis followers about who was going to take the place of Connors and McEnroe. And then immediately the next year, 88, Agassiz three in the world, 89, Chang wins the French Open at 17, 90, Sampras wins the U.S. Open youngest ever at 19. Uh, you know, Chang had been 17, Sampras 19 was unbelievable. And then, of course, it continued from there with Courier winning his four majors and Sampras dominating the game and it was one of the great american generations so i think hopefully we're headed for that kind of a, a situation now i w- will they be the equal of sampras agassi courier chang in the 90s that's asking a lot but i do think this group is going to be very distinguished and will eventually be claiming some major titles so I, I just don't have any doubts about it any any longer it, it's just a matter of time Let's hope so. Let's hope so. You're right on that. Okay. Taylor Fritz. Um, we're going to go into detail, you know, in, in, in the final and the latter stages of, of his tournament. But to me, the key matches were in the, the, the third and fourth round. And, you know, you, you have to win matches that maybe aren't what we call the, the highlighted matches. You have to win those matches to be able to play in those highlighted matches and back to back seven, six in the third, both in the third and fourth round. 
Um, so tough, both from a mental perspective and from a physical perspective from Taylor. Have to give a shout out to Michael Russell and the rest of Taylor's team. Um, again, those are the key matches when you have a run like this. Very rarely do you go through a big tournament like this where it's smooth sailing all the way through. Very rarely. And then he even had another three set with Kekmanovic, the Serbian, after those two final set tiebreak contests. So Taylor was working inordinately hard. And then for him to go out and knock off a Rublev who'd won 13 matches in a row, beat him in straight sets, five and four, and get injured at the end of the match, did something to his ankle, which almost caused him to default the final. Just an extraordinary turn of events from, from his end, and of course from Rafa's as well. Yeah, let's 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 go on the Rafa angle and then we'll get back to the final with with Taylor and Rafa. Rafa had some <laughs> Rafa had some big time matches starting with, you know, we'll start with the one with Nick Kyrgios. Um, all eyes on that match. Right. Nick played very well. If you look at the tennis, I thought Nick played very well throughout a large part of that match. Um, did become a circus show at several times as Rafa. You know, he's always the consummate professional. Rafa just blocks all that out focuses uh, his eyes on the prize, ignored all the nonsense, wins seven six five seven six four. If you just focus on the tennis, that was a well-played match. Oh, ex- exceedingly well-played. What Nick will lament, and this is where Rafa will just, is so opportunistic and so intense at all the right moments, is that Nick is serving for the first set, 5-4, 30-15, hits a backhand down the line. And Rafa said later when he commented on that point that it was almost a double bounce for him. He got over to it somehow and sliced it down the line, landed just inside the line and ended up winning that point. Could have been double set point for Nick. Nick would probably would have put away the first set and it might have been an entirely different match. He ends up losing that in a tiebreak. That's where I would fault him, David, is that Nick imploded a bit at the end and got that point penalty at the end of the tiebreak when he was already had lost the first six points. So didn't affect the outcome of the tiebreak, but it was indicative of his mindset. Nonetheless, he comes back and breaks Rafa at the end of the second set, wins that set, and had break points, a couple of them just at the start of the third that could have given him a two-love lead. So Rafa finally broke him and won 6-4 in the third grade. But as usual, David, they so rarely let us down where Rafa and Nick head-to-head. They've had so many compelling contests in their nine-match rivalry. And Rafa's won six, but it could almost have been the opposite had Rafa not been so clutch in so many of these contests. Nick did very well, but I, I still say temperamentally he remains fragile because he wouldn't let go. First of all, he chewed a reporter out for asking him about the mental side of the game and could he improve with that. And the questions were very reasonable. And he was very defensive and kind of caustic and nasty with the press. But he had just said five minutes earlier, David, I couldn't get that 5-4-30-15 point out of my mind. I, he said, I thought about it over and over. And, and yes. he used the word for seven times. So how could he be so mad at the press? He, he was essentially admitting by saying that, he, while Rafa is the exact opposite. He loses a point like that, and he just moves on better than anybody else living in the presence and not letting that plague him. And, of course, that's a big difference in the two of them when I look at this rivalry. And Nick is so gifted, loves to play the top players, has a couple of wins over Novak, has a win over Roger, but, and, and, and usually plays extremely well against the big three. But uh, he might have had even more wins if mentally he had the, the same kind of fortitude and discipline as that trio. 
Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought up the the that Nick replayed that point over and over and over and over and over, like he said in the conference in his press conference, because that was the key to it very well, like you said, could have been the key to the match. I think um how Nick approached the media, it was, I believe, the very first question that was asked to him was about the racket throw. And I think Nick was like, I just played three hours against yeah. Rafa, and that's the first Bye. question you're going to ask. I think that's why he was a little frustrated. But the question, yeah, of course it could be asked. But how could it not be the first question? Because it was on foremost on everybody's minds, and he had done it. I, I wouldn't have blamed him if he had said, the, let's be fair about this, and made his point about Zarev smacking the umpire's chair three or four times, whatever it was in Acapulco. Okay. And how he didn't intend anything, didn't intend to hurt the ball, but could have even made his case a little stronger by explaining that he had actually texted the ball boy, apparently, and apologized. And But my point is, don't get angry at them for asking questions that are their responsibility. And he wasn't any better with some of the later questions about mental toughness and, and whether that really affects the outcome of some of his matches. So. He's a hard guy to understand. I, I, I mean, I, I love watching him play, but the press conferences can be bewildering at times. Yes, yes, they definitely can. Okay, the next match, I mean, it was such a shame what happened really in that second set with the wind um, was Rafa versus Carlos Alcaraz, and everybody was so excited. I mean, Carlos, this is, this is his idol playing Rafa. We know what happened last year in the clay. That was a blowout. We knew that was not going to be the case in this match. Um, I think we can kind of break this match down by each set, if that's okay with you, Steve. Yeah, sure, sure. It started out um, such a strange set. Carlos wins the first two games of the match. He breaks Rafa with a rifle of a two-handed backhand cross court. He's up 2-0. Rafa wins the next four games to go 4-2. Then Rafa gets broken eventually Rafa wins the first set six, four and had a whopping 17 break points. I don't know if Rafa ever had had that many break points in one set before it was such a, I don't know, topsy turvy type of set for both players. True, true. But he still think about it. It's yes. It's a lot of squandered break points. On the other hand, he broke them three times. You can't ask too much more than that than to break a guy three times in a set. But not what, at all. What, the, the just the number but, was crazy. Yeah, it was. But the other thing is that not only did Carlos have the two love lead, but he had love thirty in the third game. And I thought, you know, he missed a return. It was a pretty good first serve down the tee, but he missed the back end return. Then he made an error on the next point too. I think he. Became, I, I sort of sensed in him right there. Uh, the feeling that I, if I can get this break now, I'm gonna. This set's gonna be mine. I mean, it was a big moment. He couldn't meet that moment very well, understandably. And then he he would say later, "We need to finish off the match." But he would say later that there's definitely was a sense in his press conference of, that he's still. I did. I thought he'd gotten past this, but the Rafa being his idol, he's not totally over that. But he's getting there. He's getting, he's getting much there. closer. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The second set. Um, this was so close to being halted. I know there's several matches that you can remember that were really, really windy. I remember the 2019, I think, French semi with Rafa and Roger. That was on the clay. That was crazy. I remember Andre and Federer in New York. I think that was 03, maybe, or 04. 04, 04, 04. yeah. Um, yeah. There were a few matches. It, it was really a shame. Uh, the, the one game that everyone will talk it, about. It, oh, go ahead. Just sorry to interrupt. Just a quick point, because you're bringing up those instances and you're so right that Rafa beating uh, Roger in the wind at Roland Garros today was just un impossibly windy. And then 
later on that same day, Novak is playing a team. And he got so upset about it, he basically forced their hand. He was more aggressive about it. He basically said, no, I'm leaving now. I mean, he, in a sense, he was daring them to default them, which he knew they wouldn't do. And, he, and I, I thought he was kind of justified. It was so bad that he was basically saying, no, we'll finish this tomorrow. He knew that that was to his detriment in a way because you don't have a rest day and Rafa was done and was going to have Saturday off. Yeah. But he just felt the conditions were did not merit continuing the match. And so and, and then there were a couple of other, you mentioned 04. Roger and, and Andre played three sets one on the on the opening night of their match. It was two sets to one for Federer. They come back the next day. Agassi wins the fourth. And then in the fifth, the win was cr- crazy, crazy swirling. And and they looked like club players. They really did. I mean, they didn't look anything like their normal. They somehow managed to get through it. And Federer won that and then went on to win his first U.S. Open. You know, that was actually, you know, he, he had never played that well in New York up until then. And he went on and took the title with a brilliant performance over Hewitt in the final. But those conditions against Agassi were just abysmal. So there've been, and there've been other days at the Open. 2012, when Novak and Ferrer started semifinal, remember that? And then they had to continue the next day. They did stop that one because of the win. And then even Andy and Andy and Novak in the final that year was pretty bad. Pretty bad wins throughout the contest, which was five sets. So you have to feel for these players, David. Situations, moments like that, as Rafa and and Carlos had to experience here, and as you said, almost unplayable. And uh, it, they played remarkably well under the circumstances, but they can't do themselves justice. I, I, I wish there were roofs at every major event, even all the Masters 1000s, so that the roof could be used not just for rain, but for, for on days like this, just to allow the players to perform at peak efficiency. Yeah. I mean, it was really tough. Would have been interesting if they just, if Carlos and Rafa just agreed, say, we're, we're, we're leaving. See what would have happened. Kind of what Noak was doing, like you said. But didn't I don't know, David, if you had the same thought as I did. But while that second set was unfolding, and as the wind was getting worse, I'm thinking to myself, Rafa's going to win this set. Because I've seen him so often deal with with these terrible winds and these, these burdensome winds, as I would call them, better than anybody. And use the slice backhand and take a little off his forehand, but still hit it with the heavy top and 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 not play the typically aggressive brand of Nadal tennis, but still be very effective. So I didn't think the kid was I thought it was really commendable that the kid managed to win that set. There were five straight service breaks. Yeah. And finally, finally, Carlos held it at the end uh, and, and won at six four. That was a really nice effort from him to extend the match to a third set. Well, that that the second set at four four, there was that nineteen minute and forty two second right. game, which was right. crazy. Right. Um, yeah, and Carlos, and then Gar- Carlos breaks five four and holds. Yeah, it was terrific. It was terrific on his part that he that, that because he has far less experience in those kinds of conditions than Rafa, and yet he he found a way to win it. And then I thought if he would have broken Rafa two all in the third, there was a little fleeting moment there, and Rafa played these three break points beautifully and yeah. all first serves and took control of all those points. But I think that was sort of the one moment when, when Carlos had a chance to win. And once that got away, no chance, but toward the end, David, the trainer came out and Rafa had, you know, Rafa had had managed to fend off uh, Carlos early in the set. And now he, 
he was trying to close him out at the end and he, he managed to get that last break and go up five, three, but right near the end, he called the trainer and he had it. And the guy was rubbing it. You thought it was some kind of a pectoral muscle upper above the chest type thing. And he lied that classic lying down on the court and they're rubbing you and they turn you over on your stomach and he's rubbing his Rafa seemed to be nonplussed afterwards. He, he closed out beautifully from there, won the last seven points of the match. And after Carlos had been at, at, at serving at 30-15, he just ran it out and Rafa volleyed beautifully at the end. He looked oh, good. The volleying, I wanted to bring that up. Rafa's volleying in that match was, I mean, he's always been, he's unbelievable double, unbelievable volleyer. You don't see it as much because he doesn't play doubles a lot, but he's an unbelievable uh, volleyer. And he was, his volleys were outstanding during that match. Yeah, because he there were there were there were so many moments in that stretch where he looked vulnerable because Carlos looked like he had the opening to pass him and he went right at him once and Rafa makes a reflex volley and then a couple of other times you know Rafa guessed right and lunged to his right and made back in volley winners and he also did like he did against Medvedev in Acapulco he pulls off these shoelace volleys low low volleys like no one else in the game right now he he is amazing up there but my point is. I didn't think much of the visit from the trainer. I thought it's just something, something happened to him. And he's, and he's kind of shaking his shoulder out his chest. But when he closed out that, well, I didn't think there was much to it. Now the irony is that when we get to the final, everybody's worried about Taylor who had done something to his ankle at the end of his semi. And there was the word was sweeping through the grounds on Sunday that he might default because he went out to try to practice. It was in terrible pain. The doctors managed to get him fit to play, which was great. Meanwhile, Rafa, who doesn't get the default, people think, okay, he's dealt with his bad foot all week. He's primed now. He's looking for his fourth title in a row, looking for 21 matches in a row. How can he be stopped? And yet he was stopped because we didn't know partly. Part of it is we didn't know how seriously, as he described after the final, David, this issue that he was having at the end of the, of the Alcaraz semi that lingered into the final was a question of breathing and pain when he was breathing. And, and I don't think he's ever experienced anything quite like that. And it wasn't going away. And and he said he didn't feel well and he could get a little dizzy at times. And none of us knew this. And I think it took a lot of the press to pull it, pull these details out of rap because he hates to talk about it, but he did. So that explained a little bit, we can talk a little bit about the start of that match. He looked particularly uncomfortable at the outset against Taylor. Just when we thought Taylor might come out there physically fragile and not be able to stay with Rafa, he rolls to four love, two love service games. He breaks Rafa. He's playing great. He, he rolls to five, one and Rafa got it back to five, three, but uh, uh, Taylor was able to break him a third time breaks Rafa three times in that set and wins it six, three and Rafa still didn't look right. He played much better in the second, David, although I just felt like he couldn't hurt uh, Taylor enough with his first serve. The returns were all coming back consistently deep. He was having to work so hard on his serve, but then he created all these opportunities to break Taylor, and Taylor was great on the big points. He was steadfast on those big points and fending off the break points against Rafa all through that second set after they had an early exchange of breaks. That second set was very entertaining, despite the fact that Rafa was was clearly not fully Rafa. The second set was really well played. And I, I, at 4-4, uh, Rafa had the break point, right? He didn't capitalize. Um, Taylor then had a match point at 4-5. Rafa saved it with a big forehand 
cross court. Rafa yep. then has two break points at five, five on Taylor's serve and doesn't convert. Yeah. But the match point was amazing because he dug out a very low return from Taylor and hit a, just a brilliant forehand that there was no way that it was unstoppable. That was a very gritty forehand at that moment. And then you're right. The five ball, that, that five ball surprised me the most because he's come off saving the match point. He's got him down two break points. And the first one, he made an uncharacteristic error. And that, that could have made a big difference. He would have had a chance to serve the set out. Instead, he had to just serve his way from five, six into a tie break, which he did very nicely. But the moment in the tie break, obviously, that shocked us all was Rafa serving five, four, opens nice. the court moves into the net quickly the crowd you could sense the excitement he's going to put this volley away takes the big swing volley off his forehand side and hits it inside out wide and that know was what it reminded shot. me of steve know what that shot reminded a flashback in my head it was a different type of shot but it was kind of a you would think rafa would make that shot 99 percent of the time the french open tiebreaker against novak when they played that unbelievable point in the breaker and rafa missed that volley in the third set. yeah yeah, that was that was you're right. That was a big moment in that third set tie break, no doubt about it. And it, it gave Novak I think five put him up five three. The the difference there was that was a that was kind of a funny point where Novak had been up at the net himself and Rafa had had tracked down a volley and then made Novak retreat, came in himself, and then that was the for him a pretty easy forehand volley, but a conventional punch volley. Yes. In, ways even more surprising that he missed that because he you, you wouldn't expect him to miss the standard punch volley but he did and yeah you're right you, it, Raph is so good at the net whether it's swing volley or conventional volley you just don't expect him to miss up there and that killed him because Taylor that put Taylor back to five all and then he took the next point on Rafa's serve as well and then closed it out good effort but listen at this point David my biggest concern is I hope Nadal is okay when I was he's writing, got article, he's got time to rest for the clay. I think he's going to be. Oh, no, he does. But I hope with this breathing issue that he talked about, I just he's got to get that checked out by his doctors and find that. Is it heart related? What what's causing that? That's a very unusual thing. That kind of stabbing feeling inside the pain that he's feeling breathing. And he didn't make it sound like it was just a question of breathing heavy after a long run chasing a ball out wide but that it was just breathing in general with that it was bothering him to hurting him just to breathe in general and that's that's worrisome so yeah I just let's hope, hope uh hope, yeah let's hope, hope it's nothing nothing major um right. i mean rafa he starts starts the year going 20 you know he said he couldn't even dream of that start especially a few months prior he didn't even know of how much longer he could play because of the foot heck of a start taylor first Dave, American. Dave, oh, go ahead quick a quick point on that he surprised me in the press conference because he actually, when he was giving one of his answers, he said he really was hoping to go out onto the clay with a perfect record. He used the word perfect because I think he knew as he thought ahead to that final, if I can win this final, and I've won my first four tournaments of the year and I'm 21 and 0, and then I take a month off and go out onto the clay. Who knows what I can do between now and the end of Roland Garros? Because he wasn't looking at 21 and 0 in January, but once he got oh. to once he got on a roll, yeah, absolutely that was in the back of his mind. Yeah, and I think he, he, with all due respect to Taylor, he expected to beat Taylor. He wasn't downgrading him, but he, it's a match he thinks he's going to win going into the finals. So I think that's why he ends up being disappointed that it was a chance to be undefeated going out onto the clay and, and that feeling of almost near invincibility and then going back to these places where he's won 
so many titles, the likes of Monte Carlo and Barcelona and Madrid and Rome, you know, I mean, and then finally try to cap it off with a 14 title at Roland Garros. So I don't think that this one will linger that long. It's still a great start to the year, but his biggest concern now is definitely his health. Yeah. And you got to think like what you said, if, if he gets through uh, that match yesterday, 41, Rod Novak had the amazing 41 match streak. Rafa's going back to his sweet spot on clay. You wonder if he was thinking about that a little bit, but great effort by all Taylor first American to win Indian Wells since well, Andre in 2001. Um, yeah. Andre Taylor, beat, played, beat. Taylor played great and hopefully his foot gets healthy pretty well, uh, pretty quickly and uh, heck of an effort, really heck of an effort. Going over to the women's side, and uh, you know, I've said it, I've said it several times. I'm still sticking with it. My girl Maria Sakari, I think she's going to win a slam this year. I said it on our year-end segment. I'm sticking to it. She lost to Pagula in Australia. She's playing great. She gets to the final. She beats defending champ Paula Badosa in three sets in the semis. Great match there. Plays Iga Swiatek in the final. The world number two ranking at, uh, was at stake. I thought the match would be closer than it was. Ego wins 6-4-6-1. She's now number two. Maria is number three. Good effort. Better than a good effort. Great effort by both both women this week. Yeah, they they played on another another difficult, windy day themselves. The wind was not as bad as the semifinal day for the men and not, not quite as treacherous as that, but it still was difficult. And Sriantec, I thought, really played a very smart match. They started off with four breaks in a row at the outset. Sakari was playing well early on, but then once once Sriantec closed her out 6-4 in that first set and won that last game on her third set point, then she really got on a roll in the second set. And I think she she really played the win uh, better than better than Sakari did, who was a little bit out of sorts and not at her best, but it was a really first-rate performance from Sriantec, who was who's fully deserving of that number two ranking after her last couple of tournaments in Doha and here, and she's really rolling right now. And I've always liked the way she plays when she's in the right mindset because she's capable. Scores like yesterday, David, she does that to people. She beat Madison Keys at one one game. One game for Madison. I mean, she, she is capable of beating first-rate uh, opponents very decisively. And so we saw it again yesterday that – Somebody's just a little bit off. She's going to exploit it to the hill. And for Maria, you know, she's had some tough semifinal losses. Obviously, the slam French Open last year, she had match points to get to the final. Um, didn't convert their semis at the U.S. Open. Here was another big tournament where she was in the semis. Glad she got over the hump, uh, made the final. Obviously, was disappointed that she couldn't uh, win in that final. But I, I still think. Uh, she is a heck of a player. I think she's a slam winner. I think it's, like I said, I think it's going to be this year. Another, another, um, another big topic in this tournament. And and we've stressed it several times, but the doubles play of Jack sock. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. And John Isner, he has a good partner. Don't get me wrong, but Jack sock has been successful with so many different partners. And when you watch him play, he is so dominating on the doubles court. John Isner, Jack Sock, they win the title. I mean, just another feather in, in, in Sock's cap on the doubles court. I mean, he's he is just phenomenal. You know, I don't know which, if it's because of playing with 
uh, Sack and sort of getting his counsel or getting his bearings. And we've never thought of Isner as, as so much as a great doubles player, but boy, did he impress me in this tournament. He's playing much better doubles than he ever, than he ever has before. Maybe putting more emphasis on it as he sees his singles game slightly declining. It's going to be hard for John to stay in that top 20 or 25 much longer. He might, but I think he's sort of getting a special joy out of doubles right now. And he played terrific tennis in Indian Wells in, in, in the doubles. He more than, he more than held up uh, his end of the court. He did. I think if you or myself played with Jack Sock, Jack Sock would make us look pretty good too. So uh, yeah, he's, he's been unbelievable on the doubles court. Uh, the other thing we want to wrap up with um, the super tie breaks, the rule, the, the slams all agreed to make it um, consistent and they're going to do, uh, what are they going to do? 10 point super tie breakers. And I know you and I have talked a little bit um, we have slightly different um, opinions on it. So my, my view on it is, I'm okay with it. And I, I like the fact that there's going to be a, a end to it in the fifth set and that it sucks. If you got someone who has to play a 16, 14 or 2018 match in the third round, and then they got nothing left, you know, there's examples of that. Obviously the extreme example is the Isner Mahout 70, 68 Isner got rolled in his next match, but that's too extreme. We'll, we'll put that aside. Kevin Anderson in 2018 in Wimbledon, he beat Federer 13-11, and then he beats Isner 26-24. He had nothing left in the final versus Novak. I'm not saying the result would have changed, but I'm saying I would have liked to see Kevin a little more fresher, obviously. Now, whoever came out of that Anderson-Isner semifinal that you just referred to was going to be in terrible shape for the final. Not that Novak hadn't played. He played a five-hour match against Rafa, but still it was split up over two days. Friday, they had to finish up on Saturday. So it was, it was not quite the same physical toll. No, I agree. Here's what I think about it. Well, my, I, I my, only, still- my only curveball before I get it, give it to you, I would say I'm fine with the, super, with the super breakers. I would say once you get to the final, then maybe you can play it out by two games. That's my only curveball to it. In that, in that case, once you're in the final, you're not trying to rest or not trying to prepare for any other match you're in the final well, that's the only curveball i had that's my view on it um i'll pass it on to you to, to for your thoughts. well i know the i know you're a big basketball fan so here's the way i would put it i don't want to see three point baskets uh only allowed in the first three quarters and then eliminated in the fourth quarter. i like i like a continuity a uniformity in the rules which is why i'm very happy about this decision they'll do six all according to the announcement all they'll do tie breaks at six all because Wimbledon, of course, had waited till 12 all. It's going to be at six all and it'll be the super tie break, the 10 pointer winning by two. I feel I'd like to see them go one step further, David, and make it totally consistent and have the use that same tie break all the way through the tournament. It wouldn't lengthen these tie breakers that much, but it'd be the same system because why should you have a final, for instance? Let's just say Novak and Rafa are in the finals of Wimbledon. And it's two sets to one for Rafa. And Novak wins the four-set tiebreaker, 7-3. And then you go to a fifth-set tiebreaker, and now they're playing the longer one. I feel like there should be uniformity. But this is still, to me, a big step in the right direction, that the French is now going to join the other three with final set tiebreaks. They were so always let me, clarify, let me clarify your opinion. You're saying all the tiebreakers go super breakers or just fifth set? What? Clarify your because I'm not, I'm not registering that. <laughs> 
every set, every set should have the same rules. So you play your tie. I never liked the fact that they wouldn't in Paris, for instance, and for Australia for a long time. And, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't like the fact that Wimbledon depended on the tournament, the open kind of led the way for a long time. They were the only one with a fifth set tie break. But what I'm saying is use the same tiebreaker in every set. So you don't, would be okay with super breakers every set throughout the entire yeah. tournament? Gotcha. Yes, I would, because they're not that much longer. And at least the players are actually now getting used to it. They're experiencing it along the way to the final. You know, I just feel like it's probably good for them if they don't happen to get into a fifth set tiebreak or a third set for the women to play under the same system. But And you're still okay set, if it was just normal tiebreakers throughout every set. You just want consistency throughout every Yeah, every I'd be fine stuck with a seven-pointer, absolutely. I just want gotcha. the same one. At least the consistency now is that they all will do it at six all in the fifth. They'll all have a tiebreaker. In, in this case, it's going to be the 10 point. That, that, to me, is still far better than playing these sets out for the reasons that you cited. Players debilitated coming into the final because they've played these marathon matches. It just doesn't seem right. And also, it's better for the fans. I think the fans want to see things. They want to see these great matches. I think they're... It, it, at that stage, give them the tiebreak. Let's settle it right there. And also, let's settle it at six all rather than 12 all. I, I thought Wimbledon wanted to be a little distinct when they did that. And we got an epic Djokovic Federer tiebreak in the fifth in 2019. That, that epic match ends with a tiebreak that Novak won comfortably 7 3. But I, I feel like it, the fans the fans want it and the players will now accept it. And, and, if you feel like it gives the players a better chance to come back by using the 10 pointer, so be it. I just would love to see it used and they're not going to do it. It doesn't sound like initially they'll do this, but I would love to see it done for every, every round for every set, every yeah. match, because I don't because think that's going to happen anytime soon, but uh, I, I, I agree with you. I like the, I like the consistency part of it. The one good thing is the players know exactly. <laughs> I mean, there were players that were confused last year during yeah. what tournament, what tiebreaker was used. So uh, just to, well, just you know, to recap, no, it's going to be the, the regular seven-point tiebreaker. And then once yeah. you get to the fifth set in all slams, it's going to be a super breaker to time. Yeah, that's my understanding. It's interesting you talking about that confusion, but I was interviewing John Newcomb a couple of years ago, who, of course, had won Wimbledon in 67, 70 and 71. And he was a great, great Australian champion. And he was sitting there with Rod Labor watching that Djokovic Federer final in 2019. And then Australia had gone to this longer fist set tiebreak themselves that, you know, they'd been using it in Australia. And he had gotten used to seeing some of these fist set breakers over there. So he was. He was completely thrown off. He thought that that Wimbledon was going to do the same thing. So when Djokovic beat Federer in the conventional seven three, he was he was completely thrown off. He was shocked because he thought they were going to play play on. So you certainly don't want the confusion. And they should be very clear, David, with the public, for the people sitting there in the arena. This will be best of five. If the fifth set reaches a tiebreak, we will play the 10 point tiebreak. So the fans, fans need to be aware. They're going to be confused too, as well as the players. Agreed. All, all good stuff. I mean, the month of March, if you're a sports fan, the month of March, you, you can't beat it. The tennis with the, with the sunshine double college basketball, March, man, the TV, I put some serious miles on the TV the last few days, Steve, I, I, I'll say that much. Um, <laughs> On to Miami. I mean, the tour stops for nobody. We just had a fantastic week in Indian Wells. Now on to Miami. Uh, 
train keeps moving. Great, great stuff, Steve. And hard to predict, by the way. I mean, at this point, I, I wouldn't have a clue who's going to win Miami. I would love to see Alcaraz make another deep run there because you know, Rafa's not going to be there and Novak's not going to be there. I don't think there's anybody else that would intimidate uh, the kid that way. And he's come off such a great tournament in Indian Wells. I could see him winning Miami if he can get himself into the latter stages. And I'll ask you this, because as of press time, we, we, we don't know. There's no news, but... Uh, do you think Taylor plays Miami? You think he's healthy enough to play Miami? Boy, that's a coin flip. That's a coin flip. I mean, it was so, it was so uh, heartwarming to see him able to play that way when we, we didn't even know if he'd be able to, to, to play at all and to, to get through two hard sets like that and to look physically fine. I don't know what the after effects are. I sure hope he, he's able to. On the other hand, he maybe could use a little break right now. That's a big win emotionally, physically, in every which way. And maybe it wouldn't hurt him to have a little more time off, heal, and then get back out on the clay because he's come yeah. off the biggest biggest title uh, tournament win of his career. Yeah, for the listeners, it's 7.15 Eastern time when we're recording this. We're going to get this out tonight. So again, we haven't heard anything on whether if he is playing or he's not playing, but um, hopefully Taylor is healthy enough to play and we'll, uh, we'll go from there, Steve. So much fun. Thanks again. David, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much.